Welcome back to episode three of Working Out the Inside, the myths, truths, and essential work of psychotherapy. I'm Andrew Nargawala, a psychotherapist in Creskill, New Jersey, and today I want to talk about addiction. Now, it is impossible to cover the topic of addiction in one episode, in one podcast. There's so much to say, but I've been very blessed to do substance abuse work, both uh, in a program and in private practice, and it's incredibly important work. And so many clients have, you know, they come in for one issue, and it turns out there's other issues involved, and one of those issues very often is some form of substance abuse. It may be full-blown addiction. It might not be. It might be self, some form of self-medication. But it's incredibly important uh, to discuss as a therapist and for clients to also be aware of uh, that they need to be fully honest about these kind of issues when they come in and be ready to work on them because if somebody's using and not in recovery, and we'll talk about what the definition of recovery is and how that's different from uh, just not using. Uh, if they're not in recovery, it is very, very difficult to work on their other issues because if you're covering up your emotions, if you're submerging them with drugs or alcohol, uh, it is, it is very, very difficult to get anything done. But first of all, let's, let's just talk about what we mean by addiction. And there's many definitions, medical definition, DSM, or Diagnostic Manual definition, substance abuse versus dependency, for example. But I want to talk about a working definition for therapists and for clients, because what we're interested in as therapists is how addiction affects the overall mental health of our clients. So any behavior or mindset that shows someone regularly doing something that they know is harmful to them physically and emotionally in order for them to feel good or high is showing a form of addictive behavior. This can include food, uh, obsessive exercise, gambling, sexual behavior, pornography, video games, shopping, and on and on. And sometimes you'll see clients who will shift from one to the other. Uh, they'll, they'll overeat obsessively one week. Then the next week, they'll shop obsessively. They'll do whatever it takes that particular week to cover up what's going on in their life underneath the things we really want to get to in therapy. Now, it doesn't mean that every form of addiction is the same uh, or equally dangerous. There are definite differences. Uh, when the federal government classifies marijuana the same risk as heroin, that's crazy. I mean, you're not going to engender much trust with people if you are not honest with them. But anything can be dangerous, marijuana, food, you name it, if it becomes an obsession, a compulsion, sexual addiction, for example, 
people hear that and they say, oh, you know, that must be fun. That must be a great addiction. It's not. Someone who has true sexual addiction feels compelled to act out sexually. And it's actually to watch someone in the throes of that. It's, it's very, very hurtful for that person because they're not doing it um, in a joyful, connected way. They're doing it in a compulsive, destructive way. So that's what we're looking for when we define addiction. You know, whether it's a textbook case of addiction, we're more concerned with how is it affecting the basic functioning psychologically, biologically of the client. Are there biological predispositions to addiction? This is a question, and I'm going to focus on questions that I get pretty regularly from other therapists, from clients, from friends about addiction, since we can't cover everything, obviously. Uh, we'll try to hit some highlights, and then in future podcasts, develop some of the specific uh, uh, aspects. We do look for a family history with addiction. Uh, there can be a biological predisposition, and I do believe that many people do have that predisposition, and many don't. So the same thing that would be attractive to one person uh, would be horrifying to another. Uh, the kind of things that when people abuse substances that they put their bodies through. You know, other people look at and say, I would never do that. That that seems horrible. But to someone who is an addict, uh, that can often seem like the greatest thing in the world and something that takes them away from what they are suffering and that giant hole that they feel within. Um brings to the question, do addicts think differently than non-addicts? And I think that's very, very important to consider. If someone is, is truly an addict, they believe there's nothing better in the world than getting high. Whatever their particular drug of choice is, they view that as the ultimate. And they can't understand, it's very difficult for people to understand uh, for them to understand other people not realizing that, not sharing that. And they also can't do things halfway. The way someone who doesn't have an addiction problem can take a drink now and then, no problem. Uh, they don't understand that. It's very often all or nothing for someone who's truly an addict. Uh, I believe there was in that show, The West Wing, years ago, a character who talks about his own addiction and says, you know, I, I can't take a drink. That's not possible for me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the whole bottle. And that's a pretty common perspective. And also, you know, people I've known, friends, other people, when you first suggest to them that there are better things than getting high, uh, they they will look at you and even say sometimes, like, you're crazy. There's nothing. And they believe it, that there's nothing better than that. And that's why people sacrifice their jobs, their family, their relationships. You know, things that we hold so precious. Because in their mind, you know, when it comes down to it, it's what they feel compelled to do. And sometimes they take some joy in it. 
And sometimes they feel they're always chasing that initial high that they can never get back again. And sometimes they feel horrible about doing it, but they feel compelled to do it. Sometimes that's biological addiction, but not always. Psychological addiction can be very powerful, too. Um, one mistake that many therapists make is that they believe that, you know, if we just solve all the problems in that person's life, the major problems, that they just won't want to use anymore. They're only covering up uh, negative feelings. And that's certainly true in a lot of cases, absolutely. But for, for someone who's truly an addict, they will use to celebrate uh, happy times. They'll use to cover up dark times they just really want to use. And, um, you know, if you don't understand that core principle about addiction, it's going to be very difficult uh, to work with addicts. And certainly, if you yourself have that kind of issue or suspect that you do, you want to find someone that has experience dealing with these issues. Because if you have someone that really doesn't understand that mindset, they're going to make allowances. They're going to, uh, you know, go easy on people and believe, well, you know, maybe it's not such a big problem. And when I've had people come back to me in later years that I've worked with who, who've been addicts, almost invariably they'll say, you know, I hated the people that were too easy on me because they couldn't understand the depth of my problem and they were easy to lie to. And Addicts lie. It's just a fact. It's something you learn very quickly in dealing with people with addiction issues. They can't be honest for many reasons. Legal reasons. They're often doing things that they could be arrested for. Uh, even though they have confidentiality in treatment, they're very reluctant to talk about things. Family relationships, uh, uh, business relationships, you know, they can't expose really what they're doing because they know what people would think and they want to keep doing it. Now, someone who's truly in recovery, we're going to talk about what recovery means. Uh, it's not just stopping using. Uh, it's not just getting clean and sober. It's developing a very healthy mindset where you learn how to deal with the issues that brought you to that addiction. And you develop a different way of understanding life than you had before. That's a big transformation. But it's different than just stopping using. Just stopping using is great. And it's a huge first step. And I, I give anyone credit who, who stops. But uh, there has to be more of a commitment. That's why you see much more therapy going on. It used to be that uh, people with substance abuse issues were treated solely by people with that kind of experience. And therapists, you know, were kind of absent from that equation. And now much, much more you see crossover where people come from, uh, you know, starting out as therapists and then incorporate substance abuse work, get trained, learn about that. And you see people who specialize in substance abuse work 
doing a lot of work on their therapy skills and learning a broader perspective on their clients too. I think if you, it, 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 I remember my first supervisor in, in a substance abuse program said to me when I first started, he goes, I hate therapists. And I said, why do you hate therapists? He goes, because they don't know anything about substance abuse. And thankfully with his training and uh, uh, much experience after that with clients, I was able to uh, learn how to work with people. And um, addicts can be the most incredible people, most generous, creative, wonderful, warm people in the world when they're in recovery. When they're not, you can't trust them. You can't have a relationship with them. Uh, I once told the son of the adult son of a client I had who had significant addiction issues, that if he used what he was telling his mother was that he didn't want a relationship with her. And what I meant was that when you're using and when you're in the throes of addiction, you cannot have healthy relationships with the people around you. This is why many children of alcoholics, drug addicts, for example, report that their parents were very distant could not relate emotionally to them, were violent, uh, acted out in all sorts of different ways. So to have healthy relationships, you have to be fully present. And it's extremely difficult to be fully present uh, when you're using. Uh, if you ever hear the phrase, a dry drunk, that gets back to that idea of stopping using is not enough. It means that someone has stopped using, but their negative perspective on life, their self-centered behavior, their poor communication, their dishonesty, their isolation, their lack of taking responsibility, that all those things are still present. So uh, just stopping using again, you need more work. It's the beginning of the work, not the, not the end. Uh, now, talking about denial, denial is a very common topic in all kinds of therapy, and particularly in substance abuse work. Uh, and denial is more than someone just saying, you know, I didn't do it or I don't have a problem. The most serious kind of denial is when you know you have a problem, but you won't allow yourself to know meaning you lie to yourself, uh, the worst lie. And you hide your problem. You hide it from others. Most of all, you hide it from yourself. You convince yourself. There are people I've worked with I absolutely believe would pass a lie detector test when they're telling me, you know, I don't have a problem. Meanwhile, they're testing positive. Uh, we know they're using. They're being arrested. All sorts of things are happening. And they will swear to you up and down, it's everybody else's problem, it's my parents' problem, it's my boss's problem, it's the man in the moon, you know, it's anybody else's problem but theirs. And getting honest is a process. It is hard. I, I admire so much, I really admire so much the people who are in recovery and who are struggling to get into recovery. Uh, Recovery being that healthy mindset that takes responsibility, uh, 
that is honest, that is not afraid to look at the problems head on. And, and that is an incredible uh, journey. And, you know, these are, these are wonderful people suffering from a serious problem. You know, the reason that we're firm with addiction is from love and respect and care for our clients. And if you're seeking someone to work with, to do any kind of work, whether it's for you or for a family member that needs help with addiction, you need someone that will be firm. Negotiating treatment in this particular case is always a bad sign, meaning people come in, they said, you know, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that, but I won't do this, I won't do that. People are really ready to deal with a life-threatening problem like addiction often is, have to be ready to do whatever kind of work they need to do. Uh, whether that's outpatient work, uh, getting an evaluation from a substance abuse program, could be inpatient work. Uh, for many people who are drinking, it would be dangerous for them, medically dangerous for them to stop using. All of a sudden, they need to be in medical detox if their use is extreme. Uh, you know, you need, again, a team of people to help that person, and that person has to surrender to the problem. One thing that we've seen a lot in the news is regarding AA programs. There have been many, many articles that I've seen denigrating Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, saying that um, these programs are ineffective, they have a low success rate. Uh, something you have to remember, most substance abuse work, even the best work, the best people, best programs, have a very high relapse rate. This is a very difficult thing to treat. And AA is not a substitute for a program, an overall program. Uh, treat, it's a part of treatment. Treatment is any healthy thing that we do for ourselves. So therapy is part of treatment. Working out, getting healthy physically, seeing a doctor, part of treatment. Developing our networks of friends, part of treatment. But no one single thing is the, the entire part of treatment. It's many things together. And AA is like that too. I don't think it's a miracle cure. I don't think you should do it in isolation. But it is an incredibly supportive and positive, on the whole, uh, adjunct to treatment and part of treatment. Getting a sponsor, having someone who understands the mindset and the issues and that will call you on those things, not out of judgment, not out of negativity, but out of concern and care. That is an incredibly important thing to have. Uh, when we confront people, it's like Kernberg said, to confront is to lay before, is to put before people. It's not yelling and screaming at people or denigrating people. That destroys the therapeutic relationship. Uh, what we're talking about in confronting is to put before someone the choices they have. 
and the path that their life is taking and to reflect that back to them and to say, is this the direction you want to go? Because if you want to, you will. Be under no illusions. If you have a family member or a friend, any loved one who has addiction issues, uh, if it, you cannot prevent them, stop them from using. And I absolutely have clients who believe that they could have stopped their loved one if they'd only said the right things or done the right things. We call this codependency. When you believe that you're responsible for the behavior or the, the uh, mindset of others. And it doesn't have to be just an addiction, it can be in any relationship. But we have to remember as people who care about addicts, people who care about people who are struggling with substance abuse, that um, they're going to make their own choices. And it's very, very painful. I don't minimize it. It is hard to watch someone destroy themselves. It's incredibly hard. But in the end, uh, we see the famous people in the news who have everything. They have families. They have money. They have success. They have talent. And they overdose. And they continue, you know, they, they use and they overdose till they die. And um, it's, it's incredibly tragic, incredibly sad. But we have to understand that while we can be supportive and encourage people to get treatment, uh, most treatment in this country is mandated. Now, I'm not saying necessarily always legally mandated, although that's a big part of it. But when I say mandated, I mean the person isn't walking in on their own. They're facing some kind of pressure, whether from their job, you'll lose your job if you don't get help, You'll lose your, your, your husband or wife will leave you. Uh, you know, some, and, and of course, court mandates too. There's some kind of pressure where people are saying, you know, I, I have to come in. And, and sometimes people say, well, what good is that? You know, doing treatment for somebody else. Well, you can start treatment for somebody else. You can. Uh, if you are forced to get help, it is not a bad thing. Do you have to buy in at some point? Yes, I absolutely agree that it cannot be like that forever. Uh, if, if you don't buy in for yourself, if that person does not accept that there is really their issue and not external forces, then they won't really get better. But the reality is, Many, many people would never access, never take that first step, never access help if they weren't forced to do so. So there is a benefit to having someone mandated in whatever way, whether you're saying to someone, you know, I can't continue this relationship unless you get help uh, or a court or whoever it is. You, you can start the treatment for someone else, and then hopefully, we pray over time, buy into it. You know, that person will buy into it for themselves. Now, do the issues differ very much in therapy 
when you're working with someone who has drug or alcohol issues? And, you know, the answer is surprisingly no. Um, most people with these issues are way ahead of the curve in their knowledge of what is current in terms of drugs. Uh, they are very experienced in uh, building a tolerance to using and to lying about it and to covering their behavior. Uh, and, you know, those are issues that, that you have to deal with with any addict. But past a certain point, you're really working on the same issues that we've talked about in these podcasts beforehand. Uh, Self-esteem, the self-work, self-image, identity. The key concerns are the same. Because once you get past, you know, what's your drug of choice and, uh, you know, what are your triggers and what are your patterns of using and, you know, what could lead you to relapse, and, you know, all incredibly important questions. The, the, the core questions remain. Who am I? What do I want? What do I need? What's the difference between what I want and need? Who am I in my relationships? Uh, what do I want and need in those relationships? And what's the difference? People who self-medicate in any way are often avoiding these questions. They're afraid of these questions. They don't believe that the answer would be a good one. Uh, many times when people are in programs and they're, they're first clean and sober, they get angry, they, they get despairing, they feel all sorts of, they feel afraid. They feel all sorts of feelings that they've been covering up for years. What we're helping them do is also feel some feelings like pride. I mean, I am I admire so much uh, not only the clients, my my friends, loved ones, who struggle with addiction, and you know I I'm incredibly encouraging of those people because they're wonderful people. They're not some stereotype on TV. They're they're the people around us every day. And uh, you remember that Denzel movie where he's the pilot? You know, there are some people with incredibly important jobs uh, that have addiction problems. You know, we need to reduce the stigma so that people will feel that they can get help and that they can continue to have good lives. And um, absolutely... Uh, treasure those experiences with people to watch someone come out of the depths of addiction and learn to love themselves and learn to have healthy relationships. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's incredible work. So I am optimistic, even though I, I'll be the first to say the relapse rate is high. It is a very difficult thing to deal with. It's difficult for families. There are groups like Al-Anon that are very supportive of family members who are struggling with addiction. Very, very useful programs so that those people don't get isolated. But there is no question that people can be in recovery. And if you think of mindfulness 
as being fully present, being aware of your issues, your problems, not detaching from them, but being aware of them, but not obsessing about them, not allowing them to control you, where you have some peace and some calm amidst all these concerns. You're aware of the concerns, but you have some peace. That is very similar to recovery. It's a radical kind of honesty to the root, right? You have to be really honest with yourself and with the people closest to you. I'm not saying you have to tell everyone, but certainly the people that are close to you, your loved ones. And that kind of recovery is a great blessing, and it is possible. So again, I hope and I pray that these episodes, these podcasts, while I know that there's oversimplification, I know we're covering a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but I hope that it raises issues and questions that are constructive for you and that when you think of yourself and your family members and people you care about in your life, your friends, that you are encouraging of yourself to get help and of them because help is available. We know more now about how to treat every kind of disorder than we ever did before. Trauma, addiction, depression, anxiety, you name it. Uh, relationship issues, family issues, there is help available. But again, if we remove that stigma and if we encourage others and encourage ourselves to get help and to be healthy, then anything is possible. And it's a blessing and a joy to do this work. People sometimes say, you know, well, it must be so tiring to hear problems all day. I never think of it that way. I always think of it as we're working together towards positive change, towards hope. And yes, as part of that, we have to face fully and completely those problems, those issues. But our ultimate goal, as we've said before in the earlier episodes, is for someone to be happy, is for someone to feel peace and joy. And that's regardless of any kind of work that we're doing. So I thank you so much for listening and for being there. And I hope you'll reach out with your own questions and comments. And, uh, and I wish you all the best and uh, talk to you in the next episode.